Welcome to the Hands-On Business Podcast. Delighted you can join us again uh, today. I'm really looking forward to speaking to our next guest. Now, before I start, just want to remind everyone that if you like what you hear, please rate the podcast with the link in the description, which you'll see when you are listening to this podcast. And if you don't enjoy it, as I always say, please keep that to yourself. Uh, now, before we kick off, just wanted to read out uh, a review, uh, which always gives uh, one heart that we're on the right track in terms of the topics that we're covering on the Hands-On Business Podcast. So, so I think it's pronounced soft MI, uh, give the five-star rating and save a great series of podcasts ranging from longer sessions with industry experts offering tips and tricks to short bite-sized clips featuring me, yours truly, uh, a global sales and marketing leader providing excellent insights which can be implemented into any business with a desire to accelerate their sales. So thank you very much, Soft MI. Uh, and if you're new to the podcast, hopefully those sort of reviews will give you an idea of what you're in for. So now on to today's guest. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Abdullahi Sharif, who is an Associate Vice President at MSD, Merck Shop and Dome, for those of you in the pharmaceutical market, uh, where he leads the Global Sustainable Access Solutions team. Now, Sharif has been a pharmaceutical executive for many a year and a market access leader. Uh, and he's worked with a variety of companies and specializes in expanding access to medicines and healthcare. Now, Sharif is particularly driven to explore partnering arrangements that solve major societal challenges and create long-term value. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is around those partnerships. So I think the important thing is here is that it's not just about making money and growing a business, although that is important, obviously, uh, but it's also about sustainable change. So he has an extensive experience of working with a variety of healthcare systems and partners around the world. So this is really important because it's not just about the UK, it's not about UK folks, it's about global markets that we'll be discussing today. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, he did actually start life as an architect. So we'll obviously be exploring that because that's a very, I would say, strange, let's say, let's be polite and say interesting journey. Now, not only that, but lastly, he was recognised for all of his achievements and his work by winning the Black British Business Awards last year. So welcome, Sharif. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be able to join you today. Thank you very much. So uh, I think, as I said, let's jump straight into your journey. Tell me a bit more about your background and your journey to where you are now, because obviously you've gone from being trained as an architect to being like a, a prominent pharmaceutical executive. How did that happen? <laughs> it's one of those extraordinary... Um interesting journeys, I think. Um, so thank you very much for having me on this on this wonderful program. If you think about it, um, I don't actually think I've ever stopped being an architect. I actually still think I'm an architect, you know, in my heart and soul. Um, it's just that my canvas has changed. I used to live up to um, and, and wonderfully look to design buildings and be a part of, you know, um, uh, teams that design buildings. But now we design businesses, we design solutions, and we design scalable commercial models that, that work and deliver value to a range of people around the world. And I don't think fundamentally that's changed. I, I had the pleasure of studying architecture in Nigeria. So I, I started university fairly early. I had the lucky privilege of starting university around about 16. And therefore you can fail quite a bit whilst you're still young. But at the heart of it, if you think about architecture, a family of five people come to you and say, we need a place to call home. And you're listening to those requirements because they say to you, you know, we've only got a budget of this, a land space of that, you know, requirements of this, it needs to be close to this. And you're able to take all of those needs and translate that into a physical 
solution that gives them a place called home, you know, with all the, type, the types of build, et cetera, that they have. So fundamentally, you are designing a solution to a social problem, which is I need a place called home that my children can grow into and I can give them the kind of comfort and incentive that they need. That bit I have never stopped doing. But what I realized over time is that I was far more interested in the actual solving of the, of the social challenge itself than I was of whether it was, uh, you know, building in bricks and mortar or whether it was glass or whether it was steel and, you know, and how it looked and all that sort of stuff. So naturally, I started to levitate a lot more to the more um, organizational elements of, of architecture and design. Then I had the wonderful pleasure of, of working with a company called Bureau Happold. So I finished my 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 um my my, my undergraduate, um, came to do, you know, did my masters in at Loughborough and and proceeded to do a PhD, um, uh, an engineering doctorate at Loughborough, and it was there. You know, I worked with a company called Bureau Happold, which was a fantastic, fantastic company. If nothing else, because they designed the Arsenal Emirates Stadium. Any company that did that must be a fantastic company. Um, so as, as, as the engineering designers for, for, for such things, they were phenomenal in what they did around the world. But what they were also going through a, a metamorphosis, like every company at the time was, in going from a situation where the entire industry had moved from, if you were an architect that lived in London, nine out of 10, you would win a project in London, collaborate with engineers in London to be able to deliver excellence in London. But now all of a sudden the world had changed. You could be an architect in London, win a project in, in Kazakhstan, where you have exceptional engineering expertise drawn from your team in Los Angeles, collaborating with sound engineers in Dubai, pulling together your, 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 your Middle Eastern expertise based somewhere else to be able to create a novel solution that was exceptional in Kazakhstan. And therefore the whole notion of what a team looks like and how an organization should be constructed to be able to more cost-effectively service that completely changes, right? You can't be relying on people being sat around a table with it, which is, you have to reconstruct the entire organization. Otherwise you couldn't sustainably run a business like that. So with that in mind, the company had invested heavily in collaboration services, which, you know, they believed to be the core in driving multidisciplinary work within the organization. And I had the wonderful pleasure of being part of this team. And in my PhD, I was looking at how, um, how we could use data, metadata, to be able to drive more integrated collaborative working within global multidisciplinary organizations, which today in the pandemic feels like the thing that we should, that, that's top of everybody's mind. But this was about 15, 15 years ago or so, so when, I, when I started on that journey. Um, and that, that, you know, I'd had a fantastic time, published a lot of, you know, a lot of papers, co-wrote a book, invited Harvard Business School to talk about the wonderful work that we were doing. Um, and very quickly, I guess, I, um, I became sort of an expert in this field, particularly in the industry. Now, the danger to being an expert really young is it could either <laughs> stagnate your growth or it gets to you and, and, you, and you sort of, you, you, you limit your horizon. For me, it was those worries, but also more importantly, I was hungry for solving problems. And it's one thing to solve a problem in one organization. It's another thing to be able to apply it across a wider industry. So I decided to pursue a career in management consulting. They gave me an opportunity to be able to expand on such things in a wider industry. And I had the wonderful pleasure of joining PA Consulting to be able to do that. And until I joined PA Consulting, I'd never done healthcare a day in my life. And, uh, and when I sat down with a couple of the, the, one of the most senior partners of PA at the time after joining, she asked me to help her with a particular proposal in a, into a particular healthcare system in, in Northwest London. Um, and to cut a long story short, over two weeks, she loved working with me and with her team. We won the project. The, the, the client was delighted with what we proposed. And she decided I wouldn't work for anybody else other than her <laughs> and her team, <laughs> which is one way to be able to get into the industry. And, and I absolutely loved it. You know, she was a phenomenal leader. Her team were fantastic. And they gave, gave me a 
phenomenal platform to grow. And one project after the other, my experience and my, my capability, you know, continued to grow. But at the heart of what I did, even the healthcare work was business design. All I concentrated on was how do I help the healthcare system, whether that be the uh, national commissioners in the NHS who are thinking about how do we commission differently to drive integration in health and care delivery, or whether it was the providers in the NHS thinking, how do I launch this innovative service to be able to expand access to primary care services you know, at significantly lower cost? At the heart of it, it was when a problem was wicked and complicated, I, I started to grow a reputation of Kul Sharif. He helps to think through these complicated things. Um, and then from then on, basically, I just grew in the world of healthcare and, you know, finishing, you know, from a career in, 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 in PA consulting into, into opportunities in GE healthcare. And, and now here I am within workshop and I'm sure we'll talk about a bit, a bit more of all that in that journey, but that's the, that's the transition. I think I've never left architecture. I just have a very different canvas now. It's a, it's a very interesting point because basically what you're saying is that you identify a social challenge, which is exactly the same in healthcare as it was, uh, as an architect, you're then looking at what's the, what are the requirements, and then you're looking at what are the solution to those, and then you're looking at a global delivery. So it's almost it doesn't really matter whether it's architecture, healthcare, some other industry. And, and, and the reason why I said it's interesting because I, I had a networking event, um, I think it was last week, and they were talking about okay, so what is it you do? And we had a minute to say it. So I started thinking about it. And I said, well, I'm actually a systems engineer because people went, oh, a systems engineer. And I said, yeah, but not the sort of systems you think about. I'm talking about sales and marketing systems because similar to what you're saying, the processes are the same. You're analyzing problems, you're right. looking at solutions, and it's around that process re-engineering to get a desired result. So, so actually, whilst it does on the face of it, you think an architect, a pharmaceutical, when you actually break it down, as you have done, it makes a complete sense. Okay, so... so you know, job titles are very interesting and you've got a very grand job title, but people want to know really, well, what does that mean? So what do you do in your day job? What, what, what's a, a normal day for you? <laughs> That's a very good question. And you're absolutely right. Job titles uh, create all sorts of... So if you think about it, um, in, in my journey over the last 15 years or so, or just under 20 years, it's always been a commercial journey. So whilst I've done everything I've done in terms of um, designing solutions, et cetera, it's all been you know, with a very clear and very transparent intent that my my service or my product is an absolutely fundamental part of that solution. But I'm not fixated on my product. I'm fixated on the solution itself and the product will sell itself, right? If, 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 the, if, the, if the sort of solution works. Now, if you think about healthcare in its broadest sense, we have a, we have a significant interesting challenge um, where, where there are innovations that are coming through in phenomenal amounts across the, across the world. But what we don't necessarily st stop and do is to ask ourselves, how do we create a wider pool of people that can access those products and services in a more sustainable way? You know, we do, th we talk a lot about how we sell our goods and services, you know, in the way that we want to at a price point that we do all of that. And, and that sort of, if that first mindset allows us to see that us helping to create sustainable markets is good for the world and good for us. The second mindset says the market is fixed and I'm gonna fight over that little bit of the market to get as big a market share as I can, right? And that's the bit around, you know, if you, if you focus on today's market. So my role is I take a very, you know, I take a view which is which is natural to my DNA and, and thankfully, you know, to, to, my, to my career journey is, is seeing that there are people around the world for whom one reason or the other means that they are not being able to gain access to a range of products and services that we know that could be beneficial for them. And we believe that, you know, 
that doing so in a sustainable way is vitally important. Therefore, we need to invest in creating the market structures that allow us to be able to make markets about, you know, in, in, in places where people have traditionally not been able to do so. And if we did that successfully, we will, we will, we will, um, we will create opportunity for everybody, not just for us, for everybody, but certainly in the things that we make and we believe in, it will get into the hands of those who need them in a sustainable way. So my job is to help to create that, to enable practical solutions and create that ecosystem to be able to drive sustainability of access. And if we succeed, all we do is do the most important KPI of all. We increase the pool of people that are able to access the innovations that we and others make in the industry, but in a commercially sustainable way. So effectively, it's, it's a, that nice next, isn't it? It's because obviously we're all in business to make money. We know that. Indeed. But it's also the right thing to do for exactly. the population and for those particular markets. So um, I just want to explore the market creation. But before I do that, because, you know, social value, and you talked about sustainability, sustainability, social value is now a big buzzword in the UK mm. and lots of developed mm. markets, in inverted commas. So do, do you see that as something that is actually executed or is it lip service? Because I've seen, I don't necessarily see governments pushing, you know, companies that are sustainable or have social value. They talk about it and they say, oh, well, we have to have social value. We're going to put that in the scoring of the tenders. But are you seeing that globally? Is there a shift towards that? Absolutely. So I think I think there are a couple of things that are combining. Right? Firstly, you have investors who are far more action focused today and are saying i like the fact that i can see so they're saying that i don't believe that you as a business can actually be sustainable for the long term as a going concern if you're not focused on environmental sustainability and governance issues right not because you're doing it for corporate csr but because it's a part of how you do business and if i can't see that i'm not going to invest in you mm. and that's prompting a, a a natural discourse within large organizations to say how can we move how can we make a focus on ESG and a focus on a focus on better business and ethical business as a fundamental part of just how we work full stop? So that's forcing one side of the issue. You then have a second part of the issue, which is honestly, I think there is a there is a growth of a generation of business leaders today who of their own volition are saying, we want a different, we want to run a different kind of business, a business that is that is that is at its heart and soul purposeful because we believe that a very firmly fo focused and successful purposeful business will create long-term value in and of itself, right? And, you're, and that, that is driving a lot of conversations internally about R&D, about investment spend, about growth and all that. And, it, and it's forcing, I think, a more, um, a more a, I think a far more exciting, you know, that phase of growth within business. So you have that sort of corporate lens. You then have the other lens, which is um, the employee lens. You have people who are voting with their feet who are saying, I want to work for a company where I absolutely know that we're here to make money and to be sustainable 100%. Otherwise, I don't have a, I don't, I don't have a salary. But I want to work for a company where what we do is making a difference, where what we're doing matters, where I can see the story in my product beyond the product itself. Or I can see a story in my service beyond the service itself. And in so doing, I want to feel as though I, that I am part of something that is making a difference in this world, or at least I'm a part of something that is stopping certain things from happening in the world that, should, that shouldn't be happening. And with that sort of thing is driving, you know, from my perspective, a very exciting conversation, bottom up into organization while creative ideas that help people to do, to, to do things different. And then finally, you actually have consumers voting with their feet, right? You have people trying to, you know, use their spend, use their spending power, however little it is, to focus on, on, on things that they believe 
that aligned with, with, with their own core beliefs. And so actually, if, if even for purely self-interest and commercial sustainability, it is something that you have to concentrate on. Otherwise, you lose customers. So I think those sort of factors overall, naturally, I think, are, are helping to reshape the conversation entirely away from a, a, a line at the end of a, of a, of a, of a you know, quarterly report that says, and we've done X much for CSR to saying, fundamentally, our business is good for the world. And here's why. It's probably easy to do that in a healthcare environment as well, isn't it? Because the actual end product of what you're trying to do is to be better and do better for the world. So it would make sense that the way that you work and your structures should be uh, sustainable, have social value, and you should be driven in that way. And and I remember I was was in a a meeting and we were talking about the sustainable into social value. And we were talking about exactly about people voting with their feet because we said, well, look at the vegan movement and the vegetarian movement. I said, Sainsbury's hasn't got, I can't remember what it is, like 50-60% vegan aisles because they've decided this is what we want to do. It's because that is what the demand has pushed and they think, oh, actually, that's the demand. We can charge more, we make more money and we're sustainable and and that that then starts to drive the sustainability agenda. You're absolutely right and I think it also exemplifies something, isn't it? All of us in business don't quite know what the answer is. Right. And I think the, the point you, you just made is a, is a very interesting one, because I also think the big innovation is that people are opening themselves up to innovate with their customer. And that is helping them to be able to define what that future could be in fantastic ways. And, and, and everywhere I've seen this work in, in my business life has been that the more you can innovate in that way, the more... because. The more the customer's relationship with you transcends your product of today, it's the brand that they start to become associated with. And they like the fact that your brand represents an evolution of something that they believe in. And they will trust that and they'll be a part of that, which takes you to a very different position because you're no longer you're no longer fighting over pens and pennies, right? You're, you're negotiating with a customer. You're, you're, you're on a very, very different kind of commercial commercial relationship, which yeah, is no, so I, important. I talked about that on, on when I was talking about customer-centric marketing on my, on my previous on, on a previous podcast, and we, and we used Amazon as an example, because the reason why Amazon do so well is not because they've got the best products and services. It's about trust. Once you have that level of trust, all of a sudden, you completely transform the relationship you have with that customer and the things that you can do, because you're working with them in partnership, which we're going to talk about, and what you can then deliver and what you are allowed to deliver without people even co- you know, asking the question, because I trust you. So you know me. I trust what you're saying, so fire away. Send me something because I know you. I, I can, I can, you know, send it back, and I have no concern that you're going to send me something that I don't want, which, which uh, always helps if you're in that position. So it does come down to partnership. So, so tell me more about market creation because obviously you work predominantly outside of the UK, and you know certainly in healthcare, everyone looks at the UK as the holy grail, and oh, it's such a you know stable market. You know, if you get in there and you get your products in there. You write your own checks, but you obviously look at market creation outside of the UK. So talk to me a bit more about that. There is a book I'd recommend that the listeners look, read through called um, The Prosperity Paradox. It's it's written by uh, Professor Clay Christensen and the late Professor Clay Christensen and a, and a, and a guy called Afoso Rajomo. Um, uh, and and they, they pick out a very interesting concept that the, the majority of what you, how we think about, not essentially they, they, their position is that not all innovation is equal, right? And there are some innovations that are more, um, on the one hand, say uh, efficiency innovations. So think about it like, um, <clears throat> think about it like you have a car 
And what you then do is you expand the engine capacity so it can go from not to 60 in X time, you know, which is twice as fast as what it did last year. It doesn't necessarily expand the market for cars. It just means that the people who are buying cars today are getting, are get, are getting something better. And then they, they differentiate that to um, with what's called market-creating innovations, which fundamentally help to reimagine or open up accessibility for a different consumer class that did not exist yesterday. And if you're in the first one, competition is so important. Whereas if you're in the second one, competition is almost irrelevant because the basis of competition is what you're rewriting completely. And there are a couple of other, other things that they talk through, but it's a, it's a really good book. So with that concept in mind, you know, in, in, in my work in the pharmaceutical industry, you see a a difference between various markets. So there are markets, as you as you describe, like the UK, where there are established regulatory structures for reviewing the you know the effectiveness or or, or otherwise of medications, setting the pricing, doing all of that, and then there are channels towards deployment, working with the NHS, because the infrastructure around care delivery is largely there. And largely, therefore, what we're seeing is kind of innovations that go in these markets are innovations that replace what was previously and resetting of care delivery standards. But the market fundamentally is, is what it is. You know, there are a set number of people that come in to the cancer, you know, if you're if you're in the cancer world or to the HIV, whatever it is that you do, there are a set number of people that come that come into that. And therefore the way you set up your business and the way you interact with the with the market in that scenario is very clear, right? It's to help to make sure that what you do becomes seen as clinically effective and, and standard of care and, and you and you sort of play in that space. But there are other markets around the world where ordinarily, if you do the calculations, the back of the back of the you know back of the envelope, you say, do you know what? It doesn't really make sense to do business there. Why? Because there's only two percent of the population that would that would ever they would ever reach my product, even though fifty five percent of the population would benefit from my product or my service. So the choice we make is that that two percent is not worth fighting for. What we forget is that that two percent was there because somebody developed the market for that two percent to get there anyway, right? So the question shouldn't be. Is the 2% worth it? I'm going to go is the question should be the other 53% is developing it going to be worth it, given the value that we can create by investing in developing it. And that's what I concentrate on when I look at market creation in markets around the world saying, especially with the perspective of healthcare and the perspective of impact based on the discussion that we had previously. um, We know that if you're in, you know, whether it's cancer, whether it's whether it's um, HIV, whether it's, you know, COVID, whatever it is, we know that these diseases do exist in markets where they don't necessarily have the infrastructure. They absolutely do. We also know that economic growth is coming to a lot of these markets and therefore our notion of affordability and accessibility is not as it was before, right? It's not that they're reliant on, on donors and public, you know, public sympathy. There are people that genuinely, if the product was, if the product or the service was structured in a way that was 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 relatable to their circumstances and, and available in their own environment, they could potentially access it. So my focus then is saying, okay, how can I then help to build the right kind of market ecosystem that allows that allows those pool of individuals to come into the market? Right? How can I build the market around those individuals, beating them, you know, across across the board in terms of where they are? In the context of healthcare, I'm thinking about a couple of things. First, I'm thinking about okay, how do I solve the conundrum around how they pay for it, for example? How do I provide? How do I collaborate with? And these are things that I can never do alone as a company. So fundamentally, my business is about looking outwards, saying who wants to work with us to help to bring this market. Because remember, from their perspective as well, in terms of who we collaborate with, we're also helping them to grow. So you're helping to create a financing industry for healthcare, whether that 
be private financing industry with insurance products and you know payment solutions or public you know financing or or, or NGO based financing whatever it is. But how can you create the multitude of financing optionality that just gives Joe Blogs that lives on the streets in any country uh, you know that doesn't necessarily have the market the ability to be able to do so? We take it for granted in the UK because we have the NHS and the government pays for it and all that sort of stuff. But a lot of people around the world don't, and we can't just go in and say you know I'm going to sell my product or I'm not. So, so, so you say how can I create that industry? You then go to the second part, which is okay. So even if I had the financing industry, the next bit is, well, can people actually get to my product? Can I can I think about the infrastructure for delivery of care? You know, are there hospitals? Are there clinics? Are there diagnostic centers? Are there? And I, and and with that, I can't take a mindset that says my conception of a hospital is an NHS trust that needs to look like ABC. No, no, no. It's it, it's it's context dependent. What is contextually appropriate for that market that represents a safe and effective place for people to be to, to be diagnosed, to be treated? It might be entirely digital. It might be it might be it might not be digital. It might be um, it might be app, app based. You know, through through a lot of proliferation of mobile technology, it could be anything. But the point is, how can I help create that infrastructure that means people can be diagnosed effectively, etc.? Because I know that. If, depending on what I make in healthcare, if what I make is technology for diagnosis, brilliant, that is my business anyway. But if what I make is, is consumables, then I need to make sure that, that the, the mechanisms are in place for my consumables to be pulled, right? So I'm trying to create the pull factor. So who, and I don't, it doesn't necessarily mean I need to be a diagnostic company, but there are many diagnostic companies out there that want to be able to do business. So how can I collaborate with them to enable them to see the opportunity for them to grow, right? The rising tides lift up all those. And that's the mindset that you need to have in market creation. You then think, okay, so fine, even if you solve that conundrum, what happens with I don't know, um, uh, capacity building, because you need to be able to think like that. So, you know, are there the doctors there? Are there the nurses there? And you can't think about it as, as to the, in a closed mindset, you think, are there the doctors there? Are there the nurses there? In an open mindset, you say, can there be the doctors there? Can there be the nurses there? And what can you do to help enable the growth of capacity and capability in the way that you need it to be for your product and service to be pulled into the market? And how can you do that in a much more sustainable way for things to grow? And in all of these things, you don't need to, it's not your money. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you become a company that does all of this, but there are actors and players in various bits of the ecosystem that you can enable for them to grow, you know, and, and your customer, ultimately, whether that be the patient or the government would love you for it because they see that you're adding value far more than your product or your service. And there are other factors as well. But in my mind, that is what market creation is about. It's about saying, I have decided that this market is worth fighting for, and I am going to do everything I can over the next four, five, six years to build out that market in a way that means that my product or service is embedded in how that market operates. But recognizing that in doing that, I am establishing a wider infrastructure beyond my product or service that the whole society will benefit from. You know, with, and, and fully comfortable with that, with the knowledge that the rising tides lifts up all boats. Mm. So long as you have the biggest boat, you're good. <laughs> and yeah, so, so, so it's about the, having the vision because you have to see where you think you can get to in that market because it's not, it's not, it's not every single market that you're going to enter exactly. into. So you have to identify Precisely. the markets that you can Precisely. see uh, and get that empirical data that, yes, this is going to be a market that's going to be um, able to rise the tide. Uh, of all boats and then it's about the partnerships that you were talking Precisely. about but, but but i know that some people will still be crying out yes but sharif that sounds like lots of hard work why don't you do that? Why don't you just go to the markets where there's already business there take a small percentage and then isn't that a lot easier it is but the rewards are, are far less so you fighting over incremental one or two percent growth in a certain market relative to even the efforts believe it or not is a very is a sure way of constraining your growth if you really want to grow 
you need to think market creation. And I also want to, market creation also works even in established markets like the UK. So let me give you a very simple framework for you to think through in this context of market creation. So you could go into UK market. So first step in market creation is you need to know your own product inside out because to the point that you just made, not every market is worth it. Not every market is worth you committing to. You know, you're not the best at something. Why on earth would you would you would you ponder yourself? You know, be able to do it. So, know your product and know your proposition inside out, both today and where it's going, and then forget about it, because it's then no longer about you. At least you know about it. You know you're pretty sure and how you use that to make the decision. The next bit is then forget about you. Pick your customer. Who's your future customer? What's the profile of that future customer? And care so deeply about it. Remember the example I gave you early on about, you know, architecture, a family of five say to you, I want to build a home. Blah, blah. At that point, when you're designing the home, it's not your home, it's their home. Mm. So you need to figure out what is it that makes, what would make them believe that this is a phenomenal home. And if you do your work really well as an architect, they look to it and go, do you know what? This is the best home possible. And if anybody wants to design a house, guess what they will say to that person? Do you know what? Forget anybody else. You need to call Sharif because I don't know how he does it, but they really know me and understand me and have built something that has made me better, right? So forget you, know your, know you, then forget you, <laughs> and and then and then know your customer, and and that is also so important because not everybody is actually your customer, right? You know who can be your customer in a certain kind of market. You know, so if you're looking in the, in, you know in the context of the NHS in the UK, who's your who's your buyer? Who is it that you're willing to invest in to be able to build out that relationship differentially? Forget your competition so far you are your only competition right right now you know um, and you're competing against apathy because it's easier for the customer to do nothing than it is to solve this particular issue right so what you want to fixate on who's your customer and what is it that actually gets them out of bed the next thing you want to be able to do is to figure out what is the implication of your customer buying your product for them not for you you know for you obviously you're gonna that means sales but what is the implication for them they're going to turn up in front of somebody else to say i made this decision is you, you know how do you want them to feel when they've done that if your product doesn't allow them to achieve some you might you might hit a sale today but i guarantee you you're not going to sell anything in 18 months right so you need to figure out what is it that that individual customer what allows them to grow in the way that they need to um, and by focusing on that you're again you're forgetting the competition you're forgetting about you know you're concentrating on how do you create a market through enabling that particular customer you're trying to work to whether at an individual or institutional level to be able to grow if you sell diagnostic services for example you might want to look at somebody who's trying to say i want to become the uk's you know leading leading destination for i don't know mammograms for example and 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 therefore irrespective of what you sell the most important bit is if i as a customer become the uk's leading destination for mammograms i have grown my business and if your product is kind of fundamental to me growing my business guess what you would have grown your business as part of it right so that's the that's the mindset if i focus on their, if you focus therefore on your customers and what drives their growth it will inevitably drive yours but not by fixating on yours but by fixating on theirs and the more they grow the more you grow and then commit to it so it's not a for you to play this game, your 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 commitment is not about um, is not flaky. It's not to say that you know something else has come up. I'm going to shift. I'm going to no no. You're saying I've picked my customers and I can change. You know because not every customer wants to be your partner in this way. Um, and you know you need to meet people where they are. I fully agree with that. But when you do, you commit to it and you commit to it for a number of reasons. Firstly, 
you recognize that your customer's business will also evolve and they will grow over the next four or five years. So you want to be three, four, five steps ahead of that. You want to be thinking, where is that next phase of growth for the customer? And how does my product or service add value to that growth? Because remember, at that point, the customer, yes, your product is a cost line, but if your cost line is negligible relative to the value line that they're creating, then actually fixating on the value line for them is extraordinary. And they would rather live with a higher cost, knowing that the value they're getting is twice or three times or four times as, as good, right? But, and that's what market creation is all about. You're fixating on creating that new value through helping your own customer to expand into areas that ordinarily they could not have done without you. And in so doing, you're contributing to their growth and enabling them to fulfill their own ambition in the world. And if you do that, your business is sorted and competition is irrelevant because you have your place is, 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 almost, is almost secure. And then keep on evolving, keep on evolving with your customer. And therefore what you're counting is the currency of measure is the breadth of um, impact your customers are, are, are achieving on the back of what you're doing because the more impact that they're achieving and the more they're growing the business, the more you're growing yours. And you should worry that if your customers stop growing, because the moment they stop growing, the more you stop growing. So in short, it's about being honest to yourself, because when you say you need to understand your proposition, the, the, there's almost like two things there. Yeah, you can understand your proposition, but you can still lie to yourself. The right. proposition and these, everyone was wondering, well, actually, they might not. Exactly. Like, that in lots of businesses where all of a sudden, uh, yeah, I, I'm focused on the customer. And it just so happens that the customer needs exactly what I've got. No, yeah, the way exactly. About it. <laughs> about understanding what you've got, then, as you said, pay, paying really understanding in depth the customer and the customer journey. And, and uh, the term I always use is, I think you you said what gets them out of bed. I always use the term what keeps them up at night. Because <laughs> once you've tapped into what keeps them up at night, you're on to a winner. Because then you are really tapping into their agenda rather than just saying, well, I want to sell you some stuff. Because exactly. if you can tap into their agenda, as you said, the value outstrips the weight of the cost. Right. And they stop That's thinking right. about cost. They stop thinking about everything else. And it secures your business because it's Sharif's business or whoever's business, give me this value. So why would I change? That's right. And we're so in, interlinked. And he understands my business. And we work together. That's obviously what leads to long-term partnerships. So talk to me about partnerships, because obviously you talk a lot about partnerships third-party organizations and, and with customers. Why is that so important? It's a very interesting one. And this is perhaps my, 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 my view of doing business. And, and it comes from my experience of working across, um, across a number of industries and, um, and geographies. It is extremely unlikely that you will ever sell a product in which you are the only part of the value chain. You know, it might be that you're big enough where you have the only entire value chain, maybe, but that, those are rare. Nine out of 10, you are an integral part of a wider system of care and your product fits in a certain place. And then you start to make some important strategic choices. Do you want to do it all? Do you want to, um, if you can't grow until somebody else grows, the fastest way to do it is to help the other person to grow, which then allows you to grow. And then, and then thirdly, it's how do you amplify your impact beyond what you do alone, right? And that's where ecosystems and partnerships start to come through. So your first and most important partner is your customer. And because you're fixated on what allows that customer to grow. And then you work backwards. You go, okay, so I know what I do. And I know where what I do fits into how that customer does business. The question is, what else does the customer need? And who else does the customer collaborate with? And typically, some of these are non-competitive anyway to you. So for you, it doesn't take anything away from what you do. But by helping the customer make the most of 
or, or help or get the best value from the relationships that they have and the ecosystem partners that they work with, the more it allows everybody to, to, to flourish accordingly. So let me use a very good, a very simple example. Let's say, for example, you make medicines and you're trying to say, okay, I want to take, I want to, you know, I want to make my, my medicines available in, um, in Kenya. You know, you think, okay, but if I'm if I make medicines, literally, what I do is a doctor goes, a doctor writes a prescription, the patient takes the prescription to the pharmacist, the pharmacist gives the patient the medicine, and they go. But as simple as I've explained that, there are a couple of things I need to make. I need to I need to be in place for that to be able to happen. Firstly, I need you know I need the I need the place for the patient to be able to go for the doctor to be able to, to firstly diagnose if in an informed way and then be able to write a prescription. I don't do that. I have no desire to do that. So I need to figure out how to work with people who do right. Um, you know, doctor write a prescription first, and patient needs to be able to believe the doctor's prescription is even worth doing something with. Because alternatively, the patient could say, do "You know, what? I'm going to go home, or I'm going to go. I don't know, have you know, take take traditional medicine, or I'm going to do something something completely different." So all of those play a very very important role. Then you have patient takes a prescription and walks into a pharmacy. Right now, the pharmacy needs to be there, needs to be stocked, needs to be open, needs to be commercially viable. You know, and then a patient needs a mechanism to actually be able to pay the pharmacist. All of that needs to be, otherwise your drug is still sat on the shelf. It hasn't moved, right? Now, you don't do any of that, but all of that is vitally important. Otherwise, your drug will not move on a shelf. Now, you could take a view that says, I'm only going to do business in places where everything is perfect. I'm just going to be there on a shelf. That's fine, but you're not going to grow <laughs> or you're not going to grow much. You might be in a replacement market, pound for pound, you might be accomplished competition. Maybe that's okay for some kind of businesses. But really, if you're trying to own the space that you need to figure out, how you know, so my drug is going to get on the shelf, but how can I solve through all of the various steps to enable that to happen? Now, for my customer, ultimately, the question is who who really is my customer? Is it the patient who I'm trying to you know sell it to? Is it the pharmacy chain who decides to buy my drug and put it on the shelf? Is it um, is it the doctor who's writing the prescription? Now, arguably, if I decide, for example, that my, my, my customer in this case is the pharmacy chain, I also know that it's in the interest of the pharmacy chain for me to do everything I can to make sure that the doctors understand the medicines and are able to effectively prescribe, you know, for patients to be able to benefit from that. I also know that if I think about it, that it's in the pharmacy chain's interest for me to do everything I can to enable um, patients to be aware of, you know, the health benefits, et cetera, et cetera, associated with that. So you then start to think, okay, but there are things that I can do, but there are many, many things I can never do. So by opening myself up to partner with and on behalf of my customer, with the ecosystem that my customers live with, then actually what I'm doing is helping my customer to solve the various elements. You know, for the pharmacy chain, this is vitally important. If nobody can pay for it, they're out of business. And if they're out of business, I'm out of business. So what can I do to help them grow in, in, in a much more sustainable way? But also for the pharmacy chain, it's vitally selling my drug is not, is not, is not the important bit. Because at the end of the day, they want to make sure that they're also doing the right thing, right? Because because they want to be they want to be custodi they, they are custodians of value on behalf of the patients in front of them. So doing this is not about pushing myself. No, no, it's about actually helping the customer, that pharmacy chain, being a valued customer in that health system. Right. And I'll do that with, with all the things that I have I have control over. So that's what I mean about partnership in an ecosystem. When you see it from the lens of that particular partner organization that you're working with that or your particular customer then who are the stakeholders in that customer's ecosystem and what can you do to at least make yourself available to that customer to be able to say i am willing to be a part of your ecosystem and contribute everything that i can to enable your ecosystem to be strong robust and resilient because if we do then we enable your business to grow 
we enable patients to, to benefit from the innovations that we make and we build a far more resilient society. So, That's what I mean, yeah, right? Yeah. When you uh, talk about like that, it sounds very simple. We both, <laughs> we both know it's not. Uh, and we both know that lots of people don't do it because what you're talking about is you have to understand the customer. First, you have to understand who the customer actually is and who your customer actually is. Then you need to know effectively, how do I get it from my factory into the hands of that specific customer? So I've made an assumption because I've worked in the industry for a long time, but have, have you seen that this is a common practice or is this one of the reasons why actually you do so well in market creation because there's not that many people doing it? in that system yeah. so honestly i think that um there is a lot the industry can still do better i don't think that and, and i say that across healthcare across 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 you know the, the wider when i say the i mean the wider the wider industry in in this way because it's it's far easier to fight in a replacement market yeah you know that's especially if you're focused on your you know quarterly returns etc so um I think I think there, there is much more to be done. The other thing, the other reason I think it's it's not as common. So to answer your direct question, it is absolutely not as common. The other reason I think is it's not as common is the belief that is most prevalent still is that market creation, in and of itself, um, doesn't necessarily translate into value. And I don't know why, because if you think about it, if you just go all the way back when Henry Ford started his process of of building the Ford car, his competition was a horse, right? And a lot of people would have said he was crazy. Now, think about what Ford achieved, right? A car was, you know, a, he essentially birthed an entire industry, but not just that. By creating this new market for cars, he birthed the industry for tires, he birthed the industry for roads, he birthed the industry for mechanics, he birthed the industry for car financing, he birthed the industry for, um, you know, for driving schools, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and the story goes on and on and on and on and on. And actually, if you think about what the, the halo effect of that as well, is that a journey that would have taken me, I don't know, two days on horseback now takes me half a day in a car or even two hours potentially, you know, whatever that is. And, and you think about it, that, that is, I now have a day and a half back. So it's given me phenomenal productivity back, which I can do so much with. That is the power of market creation. Now, the question, though, is why did it take only? Why was it only Ford who was doing that, and why wasn't everybody doing that? So I think that history tells us that market creation isn't necessarily something that everybody will do, mm. right? And, and I'm sure that for every Ford I can count, there are countless of others that have failed. So it's also not something that is easy. So people are right to be able to say, "Is it really worth it?" But when you then flip the logic of saying, "Now that he has done it, what it's done for the wider industry," then that is extraordinary. So therefore, you have to make a choice as a business leader: Do you want to build a business where you own the the the, the rules of engagement because you're you're the one who set it up? You own the chessboard, and it's your chessboard to play. Or do you want to be playing in an industry where the chessboard is set and you're trying to maximize your your steps so that you can move, you, you can win? I'm not saying either is right or wrong but you know the rewards that you would expect for where you grow and own a chessboard is very different the rewards that you would expect where you are going in and 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 trying to outcompete an already competitive chessboard no, well i mean without without doubt and, and a more modern day example of the ford example is, is tesla because if you it, you know what, 10, 15 years ago, electric cars, milk floats. Mm -hmm. Oh, who wants an electric car? No one's really interested in it. Now that he, at Elon Musk, actually owns that category, he's created that market, he owns it, 
he's not he's not concerned about competition because he owned right. it. I think it's one in every I think I think one in every five cars or something that sold as a Tesla. That's right. He's dominating the electric car market, and unfortunately, which often happens with behemoths, all of the massive car uh, companies who would have been laughing at him at the time said, "You're not going to get in here. This is we we own this market." And now, coming after the fact, try to produce electric cars, but Tesla is already the car that people want. So, yeah, there's going to be more competition, but he's made his money, he's created the market, and I'll be surprised if we get to a point in the next 50 or 60 years where Tesla is not still the market leader because he's innovating constantly. And he's already three steps ahead of the competition because he owns the category. But it's an interesting one as well because I also think, if I build on your example, without, you know, I confess, I don't know the, the, the market sizes and the economics of that business, but it's worth thinking about also where value would sit. He may not necessarily own the biggest um, market share per car sold, but to the point that you just made, the opportunities would be for, 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 for that company to own the biggest slice of value in, in, that, in, that, in that creative. And, and that, because, because essentially you set the chessboard Right. And, and and if you think about it, therefore, your profitability, your resilience as an organization, it's, you know, your your maths are very, very different. Whereas other people are, are competing on um, on a different sort of maths. Right. And therefore, your, your numbers may not be you may have only 15 percent of the market in volume terms, but in value terms, you know, very few can compete. And to your point, therefore, it allows you to reinvest that value from margins, et cetera, back into continuing to in, innovate, innovate and advance your position as, as, as a core market leader. Well, it's interesting because I'm, I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment called Scaling Up, and that's one of the things uh, that it's talking about in terms of, you know, the market share versus the profit share. And they give some, mm. I, can't, I haven't got the exact stats to my mind, but I remember when they're looking at Amazon, they're looking at uh, Starbucks, when you actually look at the market share that they have, it's quite small. But when you then try to look at the profit share, it's massive. Right, that's right. Like Amazon has something like less than ten percent of the retail market in terms of market share. But when it comes to profit share, they're like 90 percent, and that's what it's about. And they understand that as a, as opposed to lots of I think small business owners and even some of the big blue chip companies. You know, when I've sat in meetings, they're all about market share. We've got to drive market share. And you're thinking, well, is that? profitable market share or is it just market share for so you can say oh we dominate i mean i remember back in the day we used to call it the armed race in um in the pharmaceutical market and the arms race wasn't even market share it was share of voice they used to be obsessed about their competitors and how many reps you had on the on the road because they believed well, if i've got a higher share of voice i deliver more value and that's to me was always a flawed concept because i'd be thinking well i don't care whether you've got a thousand salespeople if you had five salespeople, but you're getting more profitable sales, that's what leads to a sustainable business. So, so just just elaborating a bit more on the partnership. No names, no Patrick. I always ask these questions, but I don't want to get sued. So, what's the best example of partnership in business you've seen? Don't want any names. Just give me some examples of what you've seen and, and, and how that's manifested itself. Interesting one. So, um, I think one of the one of the one of the, one of the examples that would live with me for a long time is a uh, an organization that makes technologies, and they um, they recognized that they the you know essentially their 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 customer saw a a significant opportunity to be able to democratize access to testing across a wider market, but this was a customer that was relatively small. And so really, if you take, if you, logic dictates that 
you don't spend too much energy on that because compared to the rest of your customer base, you know, they're a relatively small player. But if you look 10, 15 years on, if their business model worked, actually, this was a customer that you felt would, number one, grow in a completely new market segment because you have the people that access public service, you have the people that went that had um, enough money to be able to fly themselves into private service, and then you had a bunch of individuals who had to wait, who could, if the right kind of price point or the right kind of opportunity came, they could access these services. It's just that they never had the opportunity to be able to do so. Um, so taking a very partnery mindset, they went, okay, actually, do you know what? We would collaborate with this with this um, with this customer who wants to buy our products. They're not asking us to give it to them for free, right? They want to buy our products, uh, but if we help them think about how to access our products with you know differential commercial terms, flexible payment regimes, all of that sort of stuff, then actually we could help them lubricate their business and sufficiently um, support their growth. And um, you know, fast forward sort of ten or so years you end up with one of the biggest players now across an entire you know, European segment that 10 years ago did not exist or 15 years ago did not exist. And, and in so doing, I think more importantly, from, from my perspective, is that the volume of population served where 10 or 15 years ago, these people just did not exist in the market. So you didn't even count them as part of market share because they just didn't exist. Yeah. But all of a sudden, they built a viable model for servicing these individuals across a raft of markets they've they've grown workforce optionality they've grown you know they've just they've just grown impact in just so many ways and and because you know in the game in in, in the market that we're in within healthcare every person that you enable this access for is a life saved Right. So even in value terms, the impact on the world is exceptional. And that all came because this commercial organization that had a product this company wanted to innovate with decided that actually I will commit to you as a partner to give you my product and make sure that you can buy it and all of that, but also make sure that you can leverage it and utilize it to its fullest potential. So it becomes an engine for growth for your business going forward. That in my mind is proper partnership yeah. it's built a viable business it's grown and you know for the organization that sells the goods and service guess what it's 15 years of a customer that they did not have and they helped to build that customer right so it's good for everybody in you know overall it's good for the patients good for the healthcare system it's good for the, the company and the customer and it's great for the for the product maker that's my example of that and when i think about it for me if all we did was that kind of model in multiple markets around the world i think Everything we talked about in this podcast would, you know, just comes together in that. We just we make the world a better place whilst building viable concerns. So, based on that model and your own experience over the years, what 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 the key lessons that you'd say you've learned and, and would advise other people if they're trying to get into, you know, partnerships and 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 market creation? What would they be? So, I have I think there are four or five things that I that strongly suggest and links into things of what I said. Number one, know your product inside out and know your service inside out. And, 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 and to your point, you know, don't lie to yourself about it. Know it, <laughs> know what it is, know what it's not, yes. know what it could be and everything else. Absolutely. And then forget about it and, and pick your customers and know your customers. The example I just gave you earlier was knowing that the business that the customer was looking to build, the reason they committed to the customer is because they saw that if this customer succeeded, this business would work. So, so step number one, know your stuff inside out. 
and then forget about it and then know your customer inside out and understand where they're going. That's step number one for me. Second one is figure out the implications for the customer for purchasing your goods and service and how that adds value to them. And the reason that's a separate point, step number one, is that step number one just allows means that you know that the person you're working with genuinely should be a person you invest in. That's step number one. But the step number two allows you to see that what is then, how would the person you're working with see value and how would that value work you know for them and what would they do with it because remember the, if i go back to the example i gave that company would walk into the stock exchange tomorrow and be able to say this is how we've performed and, da, 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 and that allows them to raise more capital that company would be able to walk to walk into governments around the world be able to talk about this is how much we're making an impact in the people you know in the people in in, the, in your population and therefore why we are a company that you should enable a, a fair regulatory environment for so but, but being able to see it in those in those eyes allows you to then be able to ask yourself okay so you know how do i make sure that my product gives them the maximum possible value so that they succeed because the more they succeed the more i succeed right so that's that's the for me step number two the third one and it's then absolutely commit there's a lot of words being said there's a lot of slides of people all oh, part we believe in the partnership but no no you commit commit means you're there alongside them you understand it you pivot your model you flex your model you learn from it you change because you're learning they're learning everyone is growing and that takes commitment but the rewards should far out, outweigh the, the cost associated with that. And more importantly, I think the relationships you forge in that process, you know, are, are just exceptional. Because don't forget, over the 10, like the example I gave you, the 10 or 15 years, many leaders come and go in that organization. And then they go on to other organizations. Guess what they want? They want you. <laughs> they want your company back again, right? And that grows your business. So the commitment you've given will pay for itself better than any marketing that you can do. But make sure that you can absolutely commit to it. And the more you commit to it and the more you measure and when I say commit to it, it's not that commit to it, even if it's sinking ship. No, far from it. But what I'm saying is be very transparent and, and, and clear about what you're measuring in impact terms and your commitment to continue to scale that impact over time. And then number four is evolve. And that sort of builds into the commitment thing. Because, again, don't ever lie to yourself to say that what I've done, you know, where I am is perfect and what I've done is enough. I just need to sit down, do my bit, turn up, you know, call my customer twice a week. That's just commitment, isn't it? Because I speak to them. Of course, you know, I am committed to them because I'm making the time to speak to them. No, no. The, you know, commitment and evolving your model means that you have a phenomenal vantage point of seeing how your product is working in real life. So you're getting real-time feedback from that. You need to be two, three, four steps ahead in saying, okay, what am I learning from this that tells me where I need to evolve next, invest next, and evolve and change my business you know, accordingly? And the more I then evolve you know, my model on, on, on that basis, the more value I'm giving to that customer and to other customers that come. Right? And you have a live customer that likes you already and wants to test these things with you. That's cheaper than anything you can invest in in R&D terms. Right? So you might as well make the most of it. That is real-time customer sampling that is real to make make the most of it so evolve and the more you evolve the better you make your business and the better you make your customer's business and that reinforces the sales cycle and reinforces the value cycle that we've talked a lot about overall and, and then finally is celebrate honestly celebrate not just with you but celebrate with your customer remember that the more you're celebrating your customer's success the more value that translates into you and, and actually and celebrate in the wider sense because also remember that your customer success is both a positive for their bottom line but especially in our business within healthcare is a positive thing for society so celebrate the societal impact that your relationship is forging that your, your forge relationship with this customer is helping to unleash and one of the best evolutions i've seen of that even from big businesses trying to do that is um satya nadella's work in microsoft 
in moving Microsoft into a company that that focuses so much on customer success, yeah. because at the end of the day, they're recognizing that you buying a lot of um, store, you know, you buying Azure is not because you fancy the storage, it's because you're trying to be productive, right? Yeah. And you're trying to achieve something, and therefore he focuses a lot on helping to drive empathy in the way they do business, recognizing that empathy is a very successful way of doing business. And why is that? Because the more we can be, the more he, you know, he's right. The more Microsoft focuses on helping their customers to achieve and fulfill their full potential, the more it drives business value for Microsoft. So that's that, that I, I believe is fundamental. So those, well, those are my five bits of advice um, for, uh, um, for anyone who's looking to go down this path. I used to do a lot of stuff around key account management, and it's interesting because people talk about key account management, and what you're describing there is effectively the key account methodology, where in this case, the key accounts are effectively markets and partnerships. Uh, and when people used to ask me, what's the definition of key account management? People had all these fancy things that I just used to say, it's exceptional efforts for exceptional returns. Exactly. Because that's what it's about. Because what you're talking about is not easy. It's exactly. not going to be you do it and, oh, yeah, well, let me, oh, I'll, I'll go to that market. And within a month, you have that's to right. invest that's heavily, right. both time, money, resources. That's but right. if you get it right in the right markets, you then have um, exceptional results sustainably over a very, very long period of time. And that's exactly. what business should be and is about. Unfortunately, we do have too many people who are very short-sighted and they're always looking for the quick win. How can we get return investment in six months, a year's time? But if you want to build a business, you need those sustainable results over time. So I know you've you've got to rush in a minute. So I just want to leave people, because uh, this has been very illuminating for me and I know it'll be illuminating for my listeners in terms of you know how do you build and create uh, markets, why you create markets, the importance of creating those markets, and why it's better to create markets than just go after existing markets if you want sustainable long-term business and growth. So what are you reading at the moment? Have you got any examples of things that other people should be reading? You mentioned the prosperity paradox, which I'll drop in to there, but what are you specifically reading? So I'm reading a book called Radical Simplicity at the moment, written by the former CEO of um, of, uh, of DHL. Um, Ken Allen. Um, and it's a fascinating read for people who are very interested in how how big elephants can learn to dance again. <laughs> and if you think about it, it's one thing for you and I to talk about you know, market creation when we're going into a new place and there's nothing to break. Now, how do you do that when in the context of you've got something to break and, and, and therefore the cost of getting it wrong isn't just, I'm going to lose money in an investment. The cost is there, you know, there is there is there's people's livelihood. There are pensions associated with. There's an entire investor community on that. And um, I am still very much early in the book, but um, I think what's what's drawn me to it is the tough choices people that are sat in the hot seat need to make to be able to reimagine and refloat companies. And you know, the high, you know, and and and, and yeah, so I, I strongly recommend it. And so, so for me, the three books I've talked to, I think, Prosperity Paradox. There's another one, Hit Refresh by Satya Nadella. Because that's that talks a lot about the whole the, the reconnection back to the soul of the company and the empathy focus and how through empathy you're 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 connecting and partnering with your customer to create long-term value and you know the stock market and the and the the quarterly returns in Microsoft already tell the story for how that's succeeding. Um, so it's something, something is, is the other one I've thoroughly enjoyed. And then now I'm going through radical simplicity and I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Abdullahi Sharif. 
Uh, it's been a pleasure as always. And I think that most people who are watching this and listening to this will have gained a significant amount about businesses because a lot of the stuff I do is around small businesses and small to medium sized businesses and how they can grow. But it is always very interesting to look at how you can go into a large business like an MSD and start driving that sustainable growth. So that's really been, as I said earlier, illuminating. Now, as always, uh, if you listen to this and you find it's been useful and you want to find out more about aspects of how you grow a business, contact us at info at the salesaccelerationformula.com. And obviously I'll drop details into the podcast information uh, at the end of this. So thank you very much genuine pleasure thank you and thank you to all the listeners i hope you find it interesting thank you